Yes, Lord, you are so beautiful. We do praise you for your goodness and your beauty and your holiness tonight, especially as we think about you as the holy, holy one, the one far and above and away and separate from everything that you created, so far beyond anything that you created, as to be unbridgeable distance if not for your love and your kindness and your graciousness to reach out to your creation. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that you are intimate with us, you are close to us, even though you are the transcendent God. Uh, We are so grateful that you are near, that you are close to your people. We praise you as we think about that reality tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, all. Well, here we go. Start Genesis. The very beginning. If you don't know, it opens on the first page of your Bible. That's where Genesis starts. First book. I mean, granted, there's going to be like some copyright notes and stuff like that first, but first page of the content when we get there. Um, I'm excited about this series. I know I, I gave you the introduction last week. Um, some things we need to think about. And you'll see those start to come up even now as we start in Genesis 1, things we have to keep in mind. But I'm excited about it because this is such a core element of what God is providing for humanity that we're going to see as we go through this series. Now, I named this series A Land, a Seed, a Blessing. These things that God wants to provide for humanity, these things that He does provide for humanity, and they're key. They're key to what the story of Genesis is. And the rest of the Bible plays out these themes and talks about these themes in relation to what Genesis starts, what Genesis puts in motion. So I'm looking forward to it. Tonight we're going from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. And I named this week Creator and Creature. We're going to learn about who this Creator God is. And we're going to learn about His creation and specifically the creature of creatures, which is humanity itself. As this narrative goes to its climax in the creation of mankind. Okay? If you have your Bibles, all of the words will be on here, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, if you don't have it, but if you have your Bibles, feel free to open. We start in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Okay, we're one, at one verse in, two verses in, there's already a huge controversy theologically. Okay, the question is, how is verse one functioning in this story? Is it talking about the account we're about to read, or is it talking about his initial creation? Traditionally, the church has said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is his initial act of creation. The first thing he does is to create all these realities that have not existed yet, the heavens, the earth, so on. And so when we get to this verse 2, It's explaining what he did with what he created in verse 1. Now, why is that important? Well, because if this is just an introductory note, this is just saying, here's the account of God creating the heavens and the earth, 
how is the earth here in verse 2? If this is just a title, this is just saying, hey, in the beginning, here's the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, and now I'm going to tell you that story. How is this earth here formless and void? Now, traditionally, the church has said this is the initial act of creation that God does in verse 1. He makes the pieces. He makes the, the, the pieces that are going to be used throughout the rest of the count. And then after making those initial pieces, then he starts doing something with them. That's the traditional interpretation. I actually don't think that's right. I, do, I don't. And you're welcome to disagree with me. I actually do think it's a title. I think it's a, a narrative account. And, and the reason that frustrates people is because we want answers. We want answers to what happens at the beginning. I actually don't think that's the case because this verse, along with the end of the account, actually close off the narrative of creation. It's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and thus all the heavens and the earth were created and all their hosts, right? Were completed and all their hosts. I actually do think that that is a title about what we're going to explain in these next verses. And the reason that's important is because when it says God created the heavens and the earth, he's going to name those things as we go through this account. He names them heavens and earth in this account. So it's hard to distance, in my mind, him creating the heavens and the earth as an initial act when he names separate things heavens and earth in the account. I do think it's title. Now, we can talk more about later why that's important, but for now, I'll leave it there. Okay? Formless and void. Formless and void. What is this communicating? This word in the Hebrew is tohu vavohu. It's a nice play on uh, sounds in the Hebrew. And it's an, important, it's an important concept. It only shows up, the words themselves show up several times. But the concept of the two words in conjunction like that only show up two times in Scripture. They show up once here in Genesis 1, and then they show up again in Jeremiah 4. Now, what's going on in Jeremiah? In Jeremiah, what's the story? The story is that Judah is about to be destroyed, right? Judah is about to be conquered by the Babylonians. That's the story of Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4 has this vision of what the destruction is going to be like. What is that destruction going to look like? This is what Jeremiah says. Listen to the Genesis echoes in it. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness. And all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Jeremiah is saying that what's left of Judah is going to look like what happened to the earth before it was formed and cultivated. The destruction is going to be so severe that it's like... God decreated it. He did the reverse of creation on the land of Judah. He actually decreated it. It's like there's no light. It's formless and void. 
There's no fruit. It's all a wilderness. There's no men. The birds aren't in the heavens. He's saying that's the severity of the destruction that's about to happen. Okay? What does formless and void mean? It means that the earth was an uninhabitable wilderness. Uninhabitable wilderness. It's not cultivated and it's empty. Formless means it is not cultivated. It is not made for a, a purpose or a use. It's bad land like you would find in a wilderness. And it's empty. There's nothing in it. Formless and void. But we're told in preparation that the Spirit of God, that word moving is hovering, morahethet. It's like a bird. It's, it's a word that's only used of birds when they hover over something. Right? That's the only, only reality we have of, of ancient documents using it, is when it, it's a bird in flight. It's hovering. So the Spirit of God hovers over the deep, prepared for creation. Right? It's, the Spirit of God is preparing to do this creative work. And so we are already prepped in these first two verses that God's about to do something. And there's this formless void land before him that has nothing of value, it seems like. It's, it's just a wilderness. It's a wasteland. But God's there. He's going to do something. God's, then God said, this is verse 3, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. These elements that make up this first section are, are a paradigm for the rest of the account. There's seven elements that take place in this first day. You have... God speaking, God said, God said. You have God's actual words, the words that he says, let there be light. You have the creation that exists, right? It's, it's the re- really, it's the response to God's word, isn't it? It happens. What he says takes place. Then he assesses it. He looks at it and it's, he sees the light was good. And then he separated it, the light from the dark. He assesses it and gives it a role, a place. Then he names it. He names the creation. He calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. And then we have the day cycle. There was evening and there was morning one day. Those seven elements are the seven elements that show up throughout the entire account. Now, here's what's interesting. They're not always all there. These seven elements all show up throughout. These are the only seven elements that show up throughout the the account. But they're not always there. It's kind of this stylistic variation where sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. But these are the seven elements that show up the first time and they make up the entire account. So, here we go. The creation story starts with light and darkness as ordering creation, and light and darkness is a habitat. Now, I'm going to explain that more when we go on. I'll leave it there for now. But this is a habitat. 
It's, it's a place. Light and darkness are treated as places. Okay. We'll see more when we get to day four. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or heavens, really. It's a plural word, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in English, so we change it to heaven. But it's really the heavens. God called the expanse the heavens, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. <clears throat> now again, right off the gate, this is a part we all have questions. What are these waters above and waters below? I think we have to think, or try to think, as ancient Hebrews would read this, like they might. We have so many uh, scientific realities, we have so many, so many technological realities that we try to impose on the account. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, maybe there's this hyperbaric water, you know, case around the earth, and that's the waters above. I've heard that many times. I don't think that's the, account, the, the point the account's trying to make. The point the account is trying to make is that if you're an ancient, and you're living on the earth, it rains and has clouds and all these things. And there's water that comes from above. And there's the water of the land, the water of the earth, right? The seas, the oceans. There's these waters beneath the expanse, which is, of course, the sky, the heavens. And there's water above, these clouds and rain. I think that's just what it's trying to say, is that there's this expanse that God makes, and it's called the heavens, and it separates God, what is God doing? The separating is organizing, right? He's, he's ordering things. He's putting them in their place and making them separate and distinct from one another. Right? He creates what's called the heavens. So you have the expanse between the waters of the sky, the waters of the earth, and you now have two more habitats. You have the skies and the waters. Right, or the heavens, if you want, and the waters. The heavens and the waters. Okay, he goes on. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Now what's going on here? The Lord has drawn the waters together and uncovered land. So now we have another habitat, this land piece on which things can dwell, right? He creates this, this thing named earth, the land, the dry ground. And it's the companion that we saw mentioned in verse 1, right? The, the heavens and the earth. So now he's named two things after those two elements found in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, he, day 2, he talks about creating the heavens. Day three, he talks about creating the earth. You now have this habitat of land. Seed. 
You see this word seed four times in this account. The reason I'm bringing this up is because seed's going to become a very important word in Hebrew. It's zera. Zera is an important word, and it means something specific. It means offspring or a descendant, and it's used that way consistently. It's anything that produces something after its kind, right, in, in like fashion. So it's used of human seed. It's used of human offspring, human descendants. In fact, when we get to Genesis 3, what are we going to see? That, that Eve is going to have what? A seed, an offspring. That's the word that's used. It's the same word. It's about descendants. It's about offspring. And this word is very key. It's part of the title of the series, right? A land, a seed, a blessing. And it becomes key to the story of Genesis if you think about what, what moves the narrative? What's one of the key aspects when we get to the patriarchs? It's their barrenness. They're barren. That's a key factor in who they are. Why? Because the Lord has to miraculously provide a seed. Seed's going to be an important topic, so I mention it here. This word's going to be an important theme that comes up throughout the book. Here's the, that was the first mention of it, is here. In, in this section of Genesis 1. So now we have day one, light and darkness created. Day two, the heavens and the waters. And day three, the earth and vegetation. These are all habitats. Often called the forming days. This is God forming and shaping the earth. This is the reversal of tohu. Formlessness. He's forming it. No longer will it be a wilderness, uninhabitable, but it will be cultivated, it will be prepared, it will be formed, ready for, for creatures, right? So you have light and darkness, heavens and waters, earth and vegetation. These are the forming days. He's made these places for things to dwell. Okay, let's go to day four. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. This word light is not the same word as the light we saw in Genesis 1. It's a different word. It's a related word, but it's a different word. This is a word that means luminaries. It's light bearers. It's not saying that day one light is the exact same thing as what we're talking about here. This is talking about bodies or, or, or entities that bear light. They're luminaries, right? And we understand that now as the, the sun, the moon, the stars. But it's clear if you read this passage and think about it, the author's presenting them like creatures. He presents them like creatures. How so? Well, he, he talks about them, like I said, this is a different word, so it's not saying that it's the same thing as the light, but also they're personified, aren't they? They're said that they govern, they rule over the light and the darkness, the day and the night. 
They're placed in the, in the expanse, in the realm of light and darkness, to govern it. That's something that you would say of a creature. Right? And I'm not saying that they even perceived, though they might have, of, these, of the sun, the moon, and the stars as creatures per se. But it's clear the account wants to, to speak of them like creatures. Right? And why is that? Well, because the days are parallel. Remember what day one was? Forming the habitat of light and darkness. So what does God do in day four? He populates light and darkness. He populates light and darkness with the greater, the lesser light, and the stars. He, he fills them with creatures. That's the point. Right? So I said this is the word means luminaries, right? It's the light habitat we see in day one. Seasons. This is an interesting word. Remember we talked about uh, last week that the Pentateuch formally is focused on the nation of Israel. It's focused on who they are as a people, what their nation was formed like, the laws that govern them, and of course the God who is their God, right, for the nation of Israel. This word is interesting, seasons. Uh, it's not a great translation, I don't think, but I know why they did it, is because if you look at these terms, it's saying, well, these things in the sky are put there so that we can have a marker of time, right? And I think it would make more sense if signs was something like, uh, you know, something related to time, for time. If it said for time and for seasons and for days and years, I think that would make a lot of sense of it. But actually, seasons here is the word moed. It means the appointed times. And it's actually used in the Pentateuch. If you look throughout the Pentateuch, it's used a lot of times, like 200 times throughout the Old Testament. And in the Pentateuch, it's used in two ways specifically. One, it's used to talk about the tent of meeting. So the appointed meeting time, the appointed meeting place is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, right? That's one way it's used. And then Leviticus 23 uses this same word, moed, in this way. It says that it's a feast. It's an appointed time. A feast, a festival. It is... It's the holy feast of Israel. And that's what I meant when I said, you know, the, the story of Exodus looms large over even Genesis. Why? Well, because even in these early accounts, they're thinking about this God who is their God and how he's doing what he's doing in relation to the nation that will come into existence. God says it's for signs and for appointed times and for days and years. What's the appointed times he's referring to? Or certainly what an Israelite would think when they read it. He's put these lights in the sky so we could remember our feasts. So we could remember when it comes time to do the Day of Atonement. When it comes time to do the Feast of Booths. When it comes time for the Feast of Weeks, the Lord has put these lights in there so that we would remember the days and the years and the times when it comes time to honor the god with uh, to honor our god with the feast that he has prescribed to us and here the lord is saying this is why i'm putting it up in this account so that people will know the appointed times for which i have appointed for them it's interesting the greater light and the lesser light it's interesting because they don't use the words sun and moon 
It actually uses the words greater light and lesser light in the Hebrew. There is a word for sun and moon in Hebrew. The word for sun in Hebrew is shemesh, and the word for moon is yareach. But neither of those can be used by the author because they're also the name of Mesopotamian gods. Shemesh and Yoreach are the name of two gods of Mesopotamia. So it seems like the author avoids those words specifically to not attribute the sun and the moon being gods. Is avoiding that language for that reason. Right? So the author could be avoiding them because he doesn't want to give the impression that, you know, that the Lord made these two beings and they're somehow equal to him or something. So he avoids the usage of that. So like I said earlier, the lights are presented as living beings that inhabit and govern this light and darkness. That's day four. Day five. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Sea monsters. This is interesting because NASB uses this translation. I don't think most of the other translations use it. The word there is tanin, tanin. It's an interesting word because tanin is used only about 10 times in the Bible. And every time it's used, it's referring to some kind of serpent, some kind of snake, some kind of dragon, interestingly. Okay? It's not the original word that we're going to see in Genesis 3. Remember, Genesis 3 shows up. What's the first thing on the scene in Genesis 3? It's a serpent. The Hebrew word for serpent is nahash. Nahash. This word is tanin. I'll show you uh, an example of it in Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Both times here, serpent is translating the word nahash. The Genesis 3 word I just told you. It's serpent. Genesis 3. Here, it's translating Tanin, the dragon. See, even then, right, this revelation that comes up uh, in the book of Revelation where it ties the ideas of serpent and dragon and all these concepts around Satan, right, in Revelation 12, right? He's called the, Satan, the serpent, the dragon of old is what he says in Revelation. John says that. Here, earlier, it's using these words and connecting them, this idea of the, the dragon, the serpent, right? Genesis 3, the serpent. Okay, oops. That's that word right there, sea monsters. We'll come back to why that probably is important. Okay, day six, here we go. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Right? This probably has to do with three different types of land animals. The best way to understand it is probably wild animals, domesticated animals, and small things. Small animals, right? Mice and insects and all of that type that swarm on the land. And then you have wild animals and cattle. It's talking about domesticated animals, ones that have been used for you know people to, to farm and livestock and so on. So what do we see here? God now creates the land creatures which populate the earth. See, those same forming days he's now filling. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's filling what he has formed. Here we go. The pinnacle of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our image here. This is interesting because, of course, uh, I've got to bring up some of these things. We just talked about them in our spiritual warfare series, right? We just went through seven weeks of spiritual warfare talking about these ancient realities, the idea of idols and gods and and all these different concepts that come up related to spiritual warfare. So I, I must mention what we talked about just a few weeks ago. Right? Image, what is that referring to? It's referring to a physical representation of a spiritual being, usually. Right? Remember, we talked about image being the physical representation of something. What God's saying here is that when he creates humanity, they operate as his image. They are literally representative of him on the earth. When humanity is created, they function... <coughs> As, as little beings that look like God. And I don't mean physically. I mean that they show what God is like. Right? That was the intention for humanity. They would be God's image. They would operate as his idol in some sense. That they would be the literal representation of who God is. A physical manifestation of that. Of course, the other confusing part is what does our mean? What is our image? What does that mean? I'll give you uh, my interpretation. First, I want to mention, our does look Trinitarian now. I think from the New Testament standpoint, we look back on that, and we see clear echoes of Trinity, right? This is God, the Godhead. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or if you prefer, since we're in Genesis 1, this is the Father, the Word, and the the breath, right? This is the Godhead at work. Now that's true. I think that's a valid interpretation. I'm not downplaying that interpretation because I think it's true. But I also know that there's no way Old Testament readers would have understood it that way. There can't be a way they had understood it that way because 
The Trinity is a New Testament revelation. And the New Testament makes that clear, explicitly clear, that the New Testament is where we find out that God is Trinity. What was, and it, it's always been true. It's not like God became Trinity in the New Testament. He's always been Trinity. But he did not reveal that until Jesus. Until the coming of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it was not known to humanity that God was Trinity. He always was, but it was not known that he was. Okay? So an Old Testament reader would not have understood this as a reference to Trinity. They would have understood it some other way. So I'll give you my best interpretation. I think my interpretation is this. This is heavenly court language. He's speaking to other spiritual beings. This is the Old Testament way it would have been understood. The idea that God had a heavenly court. He, he reigned as king in heaven. And there were other spiritual beings who came in and out uh, of his courtroom, if you will, or his, his throne room. And they were part of his court as he was king. And he's speaking to them. Now he says here, let us make man in our image. But it's clear later on, he just says, it's made in his own image. It's made in God's image. I'll give you an example. That actually shows up quite often throughout the New, uh, Old Testament. <coughs> this idea of a heavenly court. We tend to miss it because, like I said, uh, in the spiritual warfare we're, uh, in the spiritual warfare series, we're naturalists uh, culturally. We have been conditioned to not think about the supernatural, conditioned to think about just what is material, what is here. But it actually does show up. I'll read you Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is a good example. A psalm of Asaph. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. <coughs> they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, this is God speaking. I said, you are gods. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. And fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For it is thou who dost possess all the nations. Now, rulers, we tend to think of kings, right? When we hear the word rulers, <coughs> we tend to think of kings. So one of the interpretations, the typical interpretation of Psalm 82 is naturalistic. This is God speaking about the kings of the nations. God is speaking to kings about how they are mistreating their people. Here's my problem with that. Now, this is a, it's a possible interpretation. I don't deny that. <coughs> Every one of these words, God, rulers, gods, and God, they're all translating Elohim. The word for God in the Old Testament, which is Elohim. Every one of these four spots is Elohim. So I think it's odd that we use it inconsistently here. You are God's. And here we translate it rulers. To me, I think it should be, he judges in the midst of the gods. And then he says, guess what? You are gods, like I've told you. And I'm going to punish you because you're doing all this evil. And you're going to die like a man. Even though you are gods, I, you will die just like a man. I'm going to destroy you. Why? Because you do all this wickedness. 
That's my interpretation. I think it's odd that we translate this word differently than the rest of the passage. It's the same word, Elohim. So there's one example. Another great example of the heavenly court image is Isaiah 6, right? Beautiful Isaiah 6. Isaiah's calling. What happens in Isaiah 6? He stands in the court, he stands in the court of God. He stands in the throne room and he sees God and Isaiah thinks he's going to die, right? He's like, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then one of the seraphim, remember the, the, the angels, the burning ones, are standing above God. One of the seraphim comes and takes a coal from the altar and puts it on Isaiah's lips, cleanses him. He thinks he's going to die. He doesn't die. He's cleansed. And then what does the Lord say? He says, now who will go for us and whom shall I send? And of course Isaiah volunteers. Here I am. Send me. I'll go. But the idea of that is the heavenly courtroom. Who's going to go for us? Who's going to go for this, this realm of spiritual beings, this court I have set up? It actually shows up more often than we think. I think that's the R in our image. Okay, rule. We're called to rule creation. That's humanity's role. And it's an interesting role, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to say this, because I think we've done a bad job historically in the Christian church of thinking this is, is important, because we've had kind of this escapist mentality towards the earth, where we say, listen, it doesn't matter, we're all going to go to heaven when we die, who cares what happens to the earth? That's not what Genesis 1 is telling us. Genesis 1 is a stewardship passage. Christians should be good ecologists. Christians should be good stewards. They should be good carers about the earth. More than a non-Christian. It is clear to me that if humans are called to rule over the fish, rule over the birds, over the cattle, over the earth, and all of these things, God expects us to do a good job of it. He does not expect us to... Now, that's not to say that there aren't things we need to do for humanity to flourish and succeed, but we should be people who are about protecting the earth, about caring for creatures. God put us in charge of them. And I think it's something that the Christian church has missed. Uh, writ large. There, I'm not saying every church, but writ large, the church has not done a good job of caring about this issue. It's important. right? If God has made us rulers, we're called to rule justly and compassionately. We need to rule with justice. We need to rule with compassion over this entire creation that God has set under our command. It's important. Man. The Hebrew word for man here, this is the first time the word shows up in the account, is Adam. Adam. Adam means man. So when you hear about, in Genesis 2, Adam, his name literally means man, the human, right? And here is the first usage of Adam in the passage. God created Adam in his own image, humans. I, I think they translate it right here. I don't think this is a personal name. He's talking about creating humanity, not the individual human. He's talking about humanity. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. 
right? It's, it uses both this singular, the first clause here is singular, and the second is plural, him and them. What's going on? I think this is a hugely theological point. Hugely theological point. What it is is that humanity is united. We are singular as a species. We are united in God's image. As a species, humanity is united in the fact that we all share in having God's image. As it relates to God and bearing his image, all of humanity does it. And at the same time, we bear the image in the form of diversity. Male and female, he created them. Not one or the other, but both are important. And God mentions both. We are united in relation to God's image as humanity. And yet we are united in what? United in diversity. We are male and female. And he created them, us, all together. Both unity and diversity in the image of God. And I think that protects us on both ends, doesn't it? We don't get to say... Hey, women are less of God's image bearers than men. No, this, this is clear that that's not true. God created man in the image of God he created him. Him, singular, the species, exists as God's image. And yet, we cannot just say men and women are interchangeable. There's no difference, and it doesn't matter. It does not matter. I'm not even, I'm not even getting into a transgender issue. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just saying you cannot say that these two are interchangeable. That it doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter that God made both men and women. It would have been fine if he just made men or if he just made women. Clearly that's not true. It was important that the diversity of the species exists. And in part it's important. Why? He wants to offer us a seed. We talked about that concept earlier. Male and female is what makes the seed a reality for humanity. Okay, unity and diversity, right? That's just repeating what I said. So yes, we are made in both unity and diversity. And God blessed them. And what did he say when he blessed them? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the other two elements. The other two elements of of the theme that I laid out for the book of Genesis. God has created a land for us, right? He made the habitat of land. And what does he do when he creates humans? He blesses them and he commands them to be fruitful. What's the fruitfulness? Bearing seed. Bearing seed. Already in Genesis 1, all three of the elements I've told you, God has taken care of. A land, a seed, a blessing. He has made a land, a space for us to call our own. He's promised us, he's told us to be fruitful, to bear seed, and he starts humanity out by blessing them, to make them successful and prosperous, and and, and make them live in glory and beauty and all of these wonderful things. He blesses them. A land, a seed, a blessing. In Genesis 1, God already lays all of that out for humanity. And the rest of the book of Genesis will take that theme and lay out those three elements, land, seed, blessing, again and again and again. Right? 
<clears throat> so the be fruitful and multiply, like I said, is it, that's a reference. That's a reference to that seed theme. And we're going to see it crop up, the seed, that first time of seed being used in relation to humanity. We're going to see it in chapter 3. A tragic time for it to come up, but important nonetheless. So we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3. Subdue. Okay, I'm about to throw you for a loop. This is weird. Subdue is a hard word. It's a harsh word in Hebrew, and it's odd that it shows up in this account. Okay, Hebrew, kabash or kavash. It's a hard Hebrew word because it invariably, every other time, unless this one context is different, every other time it shows up in the Old Testament, it refers to either conquering, enslaving, or in one case, raping. So this could be conquer the earth, it could be enslave the earth, and it could be rape the earth. Those are the only ways this word is used in the entire Bible. It's used, actually that's not true, there is one other way it's used. The noun form of the word, this is a verb, the noun form is the noun for a footstool, something you put under your feet. That's the way the word is used. What does it mean to put a people under your feet? You enslave them. So this is also used for a footstool, right? This is a harsh word. Now the question becomes, in this beautiful opening image of Genesis, the blessing and the fruitfulness and the multiplication and all these wonderful things, why does Kavash show up? Why does Kavash show up? Okay, I'll give you my interpretation. I don't know. For sure this is my interpretation. We talked about spiritual warfare. Again, I think that's integral to what's going on here. I think creation, I think this could be an implicit reference to spiritual warfare because creation, when God creates it, is already at war. I think that's true. It's interesting because when the serpent shows up in Genesis 3, we have no explanation for why the serpent is there and why it longs to do evil. None. It's never told us. It shows up and immediately is prepped and ready to do evil and harm. That's never explained. Why is the serpent there? Why is the serpent not good like the rest of creation? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why is the serpent here, and why are they not good like everything else God created? I think this is an allusion to that theme. Already, already, earth creation itself is at war because evil already exists. At this point in time, evil already exists. And the Lord creates humans to be on his team, to be on his side in the war against evil. Notice that God never ever says that creation is perfect. People misinterpret that when they think that. Everything in creation, when God created it, was perfect. It never says it was perfect. It says it was good. Those are not the same thing. Everything is not perfect. It's good. And so when you're here, I think this word is referring to the fact that we were called to be on God's team. It's why he made us. To take care of the land, to cultivate it, to be on his team. And what's the great tragedy of Genesis 3? It's that we chose evil. 
the very people that were created to be on God's side in this war against evil choose evil instead of God. That's the tragedy of Genesis 3. I think this subdue word might show up because the Lord is already telling us, conquer, conquer the creation. Bring it under the control of good and goodness. Bring it to the right way it's meant to be and fight against the things that are evil in this world. Right. That's my interpretation of it. <clears throat> Verse 29, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Okay, look back at this, this graph we made, this chart. So look, he has light and darkness on day one. On day four, he forms the beings that inhabit it. Sun, moon, and stars. On day five, heavens and waters, he creates birds and fish. He populates the heavens and the waters. And day six correlates to day three. He creates the animals and the humans, those that live on the earth and eat vegetation. Those three days are creatures' days. They're filling. It's going against Vohu. Empty. Void. Had no life in it. And then God fills it. God is undoing the formless and void of verse 2. What was formless and void is now cultivated and filled. God is making it organized, ordered, beautiful. Right. Okay. Here's that last verse I told you. Verse 2-1. That closes the account of creation. Right? It completes what verse 1 said was started. This is why I think it's the title. It encloses the reality of what he's saying in verse 1 and in, verse, and in chapter 2, verse 1. Right? 1-1. One, one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. It closes it off the narrative. But of course, there's still one day left, isn't there? One day that's attached to this story. Chapter 2, verse 2. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Rested here is a familiar word. In Hebrew, it's Shabbat. Right? The Hebrew word for rested, it's the verb, uh, verb form of the word Shabbat. Okay? So later on, we know this is going to become central to the operation of the nation of Israel. And again, this is what I'm talking about, about how large Exodus looms, even over these earliest accounts of Genesis. What's the point the author is making here? This is the justification for Sabbath. Right? This, is, this word, rested, is what is Shabbat, comes into English as the word Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is the noun form. This is the verb. But the noun form of the word Sabbath 
doesn't ever show up in this account, which is interesting. Sabbath never shows up, but the verb does, Shabbat. Shabbat shows up as a verb here. Right? And so Israel, when they look at this account, what do they see it as? When they look at this account of creation, they see the seventh day as justifying their practice of Sabbath. This is why we do it. God did it, and so we do it in like fashion. Just like he did, we do it too. It's what makes their practice of Sabbath understandable to them. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. And so we too do it. So what does Genesis 1 teach? We just went through the whole passage of the creation account. All of Genesis 1. What does it teach? Well, I'd say four things. One, it teaches that God is the creator and provider for all creation. All the things that exist, he created, and yet he also provides for them. It's, it's not enough that he just uh, is the deist form of God, right? He's, he's the clockmaker is always the example. He just sets it, winds it up, and lets it go, and then he never comes and interacts with it again. No. No, this is a God who's intimate with it, who's close to it, who creates man in his own image, to bear the image of God, to be his representative, who offers plant and food for these, these creatures because he loves them, he wants to provide for them. He is the provider and the creator. That's one. Two, God is without equal or rival. This is imperative. God is without equal or rival. Genesis 1 is trying to tell us that there is nothing Nothing in all of creation that can rival God. This God, the God of Israel. Which was part of the point of connecting this God with specific allusions to the God of Israel, right? Israel is looking back on these Genesis accounts and saying, Oh, our God, the God of Israel, is the creator God. The one that we worship is the one who is above all things, above all gods, above all the other nations. He was the one who made all of it. And he's without equal or rival. And the account alludes to that many times in these different ways. You have these, this chaotic waters at the beginning of the book, right? It's just chaotic. It's chaos. And it's just it, the, the Spirit of God's just hovering over the deep, it says. Right? And then it goes on and it talks about the sun and moon that are given authority by him. It talks about the sea monsters. Even the dragons were created by God in the waters. What's the point? Every one of those things I just mentioned were treated like gods in the ancient Near East. Dragons, Leviathan, those were gods of other nations. The sun, the moon, the stars, they were treated like gods. The chaos in the seas even. The seas were the most powerful force known to anyone in the ancient world. They were deadly and destructive and, and uncontrollable. They were treated as a god. Every one of those things I mentioned was treated as a god. And yet in this account, God orders all of them. He commands each one of them. In fact, most of them, he even it says he sets them into being, right? The sea monsters don't exist, and then he made them. And the sun and moon don't exist, and he makes it. Man, if this is the gods the other nations worship, God... He not only made them, but he tells them what they can and can't do. 
He's in control of all of it. He has no equal. Nothing can rival him. The God of Israel is the God of the universe. Another thing that the creation account teaches us is this. It's that it's all about humanity and their connection to God. The whole account of creation is centered on, it leads up to, it's focused on the creation of mankind. That is the climax towards which it is leading. Because ultimately, like I told you last week, the story of Scripture, it's not just God's story, though we've often heard that. It's not certainly not just man's story. It is the story of God and man's relationship. Remember, we talked about the fact that God's story extends infinitely into the past, before time even existed. The Bible doesn't start at the beginning of God's story. It starts when he makes us. That's where the Bible starts. Because the Bible is the story of God's relationship with man. It's important. It's what this account teaches us. Lastly, even from our very earliest days, God set up everything we needed. A land, a seed, and a blessing. From the very beginning, he creates a place that we can call our own, a a space for us. He creates the idea of descendants and offspring, that we would be fruitful and multiply, that we would have family and be connected in community. And he sets up to bless us. He does bless us. He speaks a blessing that we would be successful and great and prosperous and do good things. God does all of that in Genesis 1. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. Now on the other hand, here comes the hard part for the church, generally. What does Genesis 1 not teach? What does Genesis 1 not teach? This is an account that has all kinds of questions around it. Everyone has questions. And I think the more and more modern we've gotten, the more and more questions we have. Because we have other emphasis, we have other emphases than, uh, than the ancients did, than the original readers. They would not have read this and asked the questions that we asked, I don't think. Okay. One, it does not give a scientific account of creation. If you're coming to this looking for science, I think you've missed the point. You missed the point. The point is those things I just talked about. The point is that God has no rival and has no equal. The point is that he is a provider and he is the creator. The point is that he loves humanity and he set everything up for us to succeed and be wonderful and be beautiful creation. That's the point of the account. It's not so that we can look at it and figure out all our scientific data points. That's not why you wrote it. That's not why you wrote it. Right? It's to tell who God was, who he is. It's, ma- it's to make clear that the God of Israel is the God of creation. It's to make clear that humanity is uniquely connected to this God in a way that is connected to no other being. We're connected to this God. That's the point. Two, it doesn't tell us everything we want to know about the existence of the universe. I don't think. I don't think it tells us all the things we want to know. Remember, I told you at the beginning, that first verse, I think, is a title. I think it is telling us about the account we're about to read. 
And, and I have no problem accepting the fact that I don't think this account tells us all the things we want to know about how the, earth, how the universe started. I think theologically, I absolutely believe that the Lord created all that exists. Um, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't tell us that. It doesn't explicitly tell us about all kinds of things. It doesn't tell us about the existence of these spiritual beings. Where did they come from? It never says. It never talks about where other spiritual beings started. <clears throat> it doesn't give us that account. It doesn't give us the account of why evil already exists. Like I told you, in Genesis 3, it's already there. And it never feels that it needs to tell us, where did this come from? How did this start? What happened between God and something that we don't know about in this account that would have made evil? We don't know. It doesn't say. And lastly, this earth that's presented in, in chapter 2, we don't know why it's formless and void. I mean, if you think about it, isn't that kind of odd? If, if Genesis 1.1 is the story of him creating the initial elements. Why didn't he just create them all perfect? Or good? Why didn't he just initially create them? Like, here's the expanse and here's the thing. Why would that be the case? Why did he start making a formless void thing and then shaping it all? I don't know. But verse 2 points to that. I think when it relates to spiritual warfare, maybe the formless and voidness of the earth is that maybe there was already some big war. Maybe there was already a spiritual war going on. I don't know. That's pure speculation. The point is that verse 2 doesn't explain it. There, if there is a gap somewhere in there between verse 1-1 and verse 1-2, we don't understand what it is. Because there's nothing else between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. We don't have the answers. It does not tell us all the things we want to know. And lastly, it doesn't answer every question we want to ask of it. I think the author is unconcerned with the scientific and philosophical questions we want to ask of this text. No, he's trying to use it as a poetic narrative to explain who this God is and how humans relate to him. That's his purpose. That's his purpose. It's not to answer every scientific question. It's not to answer every philosophical question. It's to tell who this God is that Israel serves and how humans connect to him. And that's where we're left. That's where we're left with all these questions that in a lot of ways are unanswerable. And that's okay. I think our biggest problem is that we're not okay with that. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that, that the secret things belong to the Lord, but what has been revealed belongs to us and our children forever. And the things that God's revealed, those are ours. We can take them to the bank. We're, they're ours. They're revelation that he's given us. We can hold on to those truths. But the things he hasn't revealed, the secret things, they're his. We've got to hold them with an open hand. We've got to hold them loosely. Not because they don't matter. Not because they're unimportant but because we know that we're speculating. God hasn't told us. He hasn't revealed it to us. But the things he has revealed, we hold on to. We hold on to his promises and truth because we know that they're true because God told us. This God, the very God who made all that is, 
the very God who did all these great acts of Genesis 1, graciously has told us the things we need to know to be saved, to be in relationship with him, to believe in his son, and be filled with the Holy Spirit and have our entire existence changed. God revealed those things to us by his grace, by his mercy to us. So let's accept what he's offered. Let's accept what he's offered. Be content to argue and debate about what he hasn't revealed. Uh, Enjoy it. Have those discussions. Uh, But let's not make them dogmatic. Let's not make them the center of our faith, because they're not. They're not. The things related to Jesus, the things related to the coming of the Spirit of God, those things are central. Who God is, how we can relate to him, how we can be saved, those things are the central Central core piece. They're the center of our faith. <clears throat> These things are fun to talk about. You know, how old is the earth? Is it literal six-day creation? All those questions are great questions. <coughs> we shouldn't be afraid of them. We shouldn't be afraid of having those discussions. But they shouldn't be the center of our faith either. Right? All right.